All right, welcome to the Cava Ships Podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk, shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. The Cava Ships Podcast is sponsored by GE Marine, a GE aerospace company offering unparalleled power and propulsion for ships from the biggest combatants to the smallest, fastest patrol boats. GE's propulsion solutions are ready for the next generation of sea power. Learn more at geaerospace.com slash marine and by HII. HII is a trusted defense and technologies partner supporting all services and all domains and America's only builder of nuclear-powered aircraft carriers. HII, delivering hard stuff done right. Coming up, while the U.S. Navy and its commercial shipyards work together, the service puts most of its repair jobs up for bid. And with competition comes risk. Now, one of the largest ship repair yards on the West Coast is laying off nearly 300 employees due to a shortage of work. We'll talk with Paul Smith, head of BAE Systems Ship Repair Business, about his yards in San Diego, Norfolk, and Jacksonville, as well as the challenges of doing business with the U.S. Navy. But first, a look at this week's Naval News. The U.S. Coast Guard cutter Stratton arrived in Manila June 1st for a trilateral engagement with the Filipino and Japanese Coast Guards. Cooperation between the three Coast Guards is increasing in a move to counter persistent and increased Chinese incursions into the exclusive economic zones of Western Pacific nations. The Stratton and cutters from Japan and the Philippines will carry out kagape, or side-by-side, exercises that will run through June 7th in Filipino waters. NATO's annual Baltops Naval Exercise in Northern Europe is set to run from June 4th through the 16th in the Baltic region. The exercise begins in Tallinn, Estonia, and will involve 19 NATO member nations, partner nation Sweden, 50 ships, and more than 6,000 personnel. A feature of this year's exercise is the use of unmanned surface vehicles. A U.S. Navy single-seat F-5N Tiger II fighter crashed May 31st about 25 miles off Naval Air Station Key West, Florida. The pilot ejected and was recovered from the water by a Navy MH-60 Sierra helicopter and taken to hospital. The F-5N was being operated in the adversary role by Fighter Squadron Composite 111, the Sundowners, a reserve adversary squadron. In new ship news, a keel authentication ceremony for the future USS Pittsburgh, LPD-31, was held June 2nd at Huntington Ingalls Shipyard in Pascagoula, Mississippi. The ship, the fifth to bear the name of the Steel City, will be the second Flight 2 variant of the San Antonio class of amphibious transport docks. The Chinese seagoing grab dredge Chuan Hong 68, a ship that is long thought to be engaged in the systematic destruction and looting of sunken World War II warships, was detained by Malaysian authorities in Johor on May 29th after unexploded artillery shells were discovered aboard the ship during a routine inspection. The Xuanhong 68 was earlier spotted over the wrecks of the British capital ships Prince of Wales and Repulse, sunk by Japanese bombers in December 1941 with a loss of 842 sailors and considered official war graves by the British government. The Chinese ship was also thought to have plundered the wrecks of the Dutch cruisers De Reuter, 
in Java, the Japanese destroyer Sagiri, two large Japanese passenger ships, and many more. And that's a look at just some of this week's naval news. EAE San Diego, one of the top ship repair yards working on U.S. Navy Pacific Fleet ships, is laying off about one-third of its workforce. BAE notified the state of California it is eliminating 275 jobs in San Diego, dropping its permanent workforce from 1,145 to 870 employees. The jobs being lost are largely welders, machinists, electricians, and sheet metal fitters. BAE San Diego had a high point in 2015 of about 1,770 full-time employees with nearly 300 temporary workers. When the current round of layoffs is complete, there will be no more temporary workers. With us to talk about it is Paul Smith, Senior Vice President and General Manager of BAE Ship Systems Repair. Welcome back to the podcast, Paul. Thanks, Chris. Happy to be back. Well, so you have three locations, Norfolk, San Diego, and Jacksonville. We're starting off here talking about San Diego. Why are these layoffs happening? Uh, Chris, the combination of events, one is the less workload in the Port of San Diego. You know, the Navy has some high points and low points when it comes to the amount of work that they have. There's a combination of uh, ships available for maintenance, operational needs, budgetary. Uh, those all come together into some high points and some low points as far as workload in a port. And so uh, San Diego is going through a low point. Uh, for a good bit of this year and in 2024 uh, as we extend out and look at the workload that's there. Uh, and then the other piece is it is a competitive environment. There's more capacity and competitors there. Uh, so you have some wins and some losses in that competitive environment. So those two factors come together where we're looking at some low points as far as workload for the rest of 2023 and, and most of 2024. You know, we often hear from the Navy, uh, you know, in regarding the size of the fleet. Uh, they talk about the lack of shipbuilding capacity. They also talk a lot, uh, about, a lot about the lack of ship repair capacity, particularly in the, in the Pacific, where the, where the majority of the fleet is now based. Um, there has been, I mean, there have been a lot of challenges over the years in the Pacific compared to the East Coast. But, you know, there's been some, some plus ups too. So vigor is a company that uh, is in Portland and in Seattle. Uh, they seem to have taken some of your business. Um, Austell USA just opened a, a new small shipyard in San Diego. Um, so there, there does seem to be competition, but you know, again, the, it, it sounds like there's excess capacity. If you're doing layoffs on the West Coast, is there excess capacity? Yeah, there's, there's excess capacity, combination of both infrastructure and people for the next 18 months. Um, you know, we don't see a scenario where all the docks are, my two docks are full, uh, and we don't see a scenario where, you know, jobs are provided for all the, the people mentioned. Uh, you, you brought it up as well. There's an increased number of competitors. Um, within San Diego, the, the bids are coastwide, so that brings in the ship going out of home port up to Seattle or Portland potentially. So number of competitors are on the rise and then the number of ships are less. You've seen that with the decommissionings, the earlier decommissionings. Uh, example in San Diego, you had two of the LCSs 
um, on the West Coast there with Montgomery and Jackson that are on the DCOM list early. So those factors come together and there's just less work in San Diego. It's almost hard to believe. I mean, really from the narrative that Navy has been pushing for a long time that, you know, the, the, the impression is that they don't have nearly enough. Uh, Pearl Harbor BAE systems was, did have a yard in Pearl Harbor for a while. Um, you closed that a few years ago. Uh, because what, what were some of the factors with that? So a couple of things there. Workload was down as well. And then uh, Hawaii, along with the other ports, went from the cost plus to the fixed price contracts. And the, and the trouble with uh, in fixed price is your capacity, your people, uh, both infrastructure and people, have to be paid for one way or another. And so if you have a job and then suddenly for six months you have no job, um, you, you can't support that infrastructure and you can't support the people. So for us, a few years ago, we, we ran an assessment. And when uh, we finished the last ship, uh, the USS Hopper, uh, which was on a cost plus contract for us, we made a business decision not to uh, remain in Hawaii in that fixed price environment where there's a high workload, low workload environment and it's hard to uh, to fill your capacity on a regular basis. So, you know, one of the lessons to me is that, I mean, all these situations are fluid. Yards come and go, companies come and go, um, ships come and go, budgets come and go. Um, th these are not static situations. Uh, you talked about cost plus versus fixed price contracts. This whole world of contracting, which to most people is fairly arcane, um, not at all for you, you live it. But this has been changing the landscape of the ship repair industry for some time now, as the Navy has moved from not just fixed price and cost plus, but um, individual ship contracts being offered for work, you know, the USS XX is coming up for who wants to bid on it, to some years ago, they went to batch, it's essentially batch ordering. So we're going to have five of these things come up and we don't want to do individual things anymore. And the shipyards, some of them like that because it was more continuity. It was more guaranteed work. Um, whereas, whereas if you're always just bidding on individual ships, you never really know what your outlook is going to be. Uh, the smaller shipyards complained that they'd be ridden out of business because they really couldn't compete on a, on a big uh, multi-ship contracts. That's exactly what happened. Some of the shipyards went out of business. They were, some of them were gone. Uh, some of them were, were bought up by larger companies, including BAE, including uh, uh, General Dynamics, NASCO, for example. Um, and, you know, a lot of people, so, and now the navies didn't like that because uh, you know, attitudes changed. We don't have enough competition. We need to, to put that back in there. Now that now the industry reset itself for, for one form of contracting, Navy's going back to another again, throwing in other added things like how many ships are around, cost plus. I mean, this is a, it's not just dynamic. I mean, it's a, this, this is a really difficult business environment. How do you project, you know, what, what you're going to be doing from this year to that? Can you talk about that and some of, some of the stuff you've, you've been living through over these past few years? Yeah, so each of the contracting models have pluses and minuses. Uh, in this environment, to your point, Chris, we 
typically will get awarded at A-120 or four months before the start of the avail. And so it's a it's a very binary event where um, you put a bid in and if you win it, you could be in a hiring mode. Um, and if you put a bid in and lose, especially if there's no backup ship, uh, you're in an environment where you're losing jobs. So the gas and brake on hiring or letting people go is kind of at best with a four-month um, viewpoint, which which is difficult to operate in it. The way to partially solve that is a consistent workload and more work so that if you lose a job, um, perhaps you get a smaller job, but you still get something else to work on uh, versus nothing. And so that's where if you go back to the decommissioning of vessels, the early decommissioning of vessels, and, and we understand why the Navy's doing that, um, that puts less workload here in Norfolk. It puts less workload in San Diego. And you couple that with the same number of competitors or an increased number of competitors, like you mentioned earlier, uh, you really have some winners and losers. And when you lose a particular bid, you're in an environment where you have to eliminate jobs. Unfortunately, particularly for Norfolk and San Diego, there's not an alternative. Uh, there's different rules around MSC work, Coast Guard work, and so forth. Uh, as an example, with small business set aside. So it's very difficult for us to find backup work outside the U.S. Navy surface fleet. So the, these are the jobs that um, across the industry, people sort of bemoan that we don't have enough of, right? I mean, the, this talent level that, uh, you know, once these jobs go away, it's hard to recreate them. Um, I think you've done a good job, Paul, of explaining sort of the immediate impact to BAE and why you guys are where you are. What does it mean for the larger industry um, to lose 275 jobs from a company like BAE? I mean, is this, do these jobs just, do you think, do these folks just get picked up somewhere else? Or do these folks, you think, leave the ship repair industry sort of uh, injuring the overall health of the industry further? Uh, it's a combination of both. Uh, it's probably maybe somewhere around the 50-50 mark where some of the people will uh, find, you know, literally down the street uh, at another shipyard. Or, you know, particularly in San Diego, there's a lot of other economies and industries at play where uh, people can join that. And then the third item you find is it's an opportunity for somebody or or they're forced to relocate geographically. So they'll either work uh, temporarily out of town and leave leave their family or move their family uh, and work in a in a different town. And so those are all kind of the the offshoots. The the piece that's also tough is the loss of experience. So right. we do a lot starting with safety um, around training. And then obviously, like all of us have worked on teams before, working as a team of people, uh, you also break that up as well. So there's a certain teamwork, rhythm, uh, safety, watching out for one another, that that experience, you you break that up and, and you lose that. And so I, I don't think there's ever going to be a perfect time that's always flat, but there is some big high points and low points as a combination of the contracting environment, less ships. Um, you know, those factors come together until you have some high points and low points where you're subtracting uh, workforce, unfortunately. 
What's the timeline for when this will occur? I mean, is it a rolling timeline or does it happen all at once? Can you kind of shed some light on that? Yeah, it's a rolling timeline. So uh, you had mentioned earlier the temporary workforce. So that that's something where um, we shed those roles in the last couple of months. So this dates back to the February, March timeframe when we started that process. And then you unfortunately get into then voluntary attrition and then into the warn notice like we did back on May 12th. And so that's a process that plays out over a couple of months. And then the last piece is, um, you know, we have a couple active bids in right now. So depending on whether we win or lose those, that could also mean more or less um, jobs that are affected as well. And then the last piece, one thing we are doing is um, some of the workers were able to offer opportunities in our Jacksonville facility. So uh, for a few months, they go to Jacksonville, uh, live in, in, you know, temporary uh, hotel or housing or an apartment and do some work in Jacksonville. And so we can kind of bridge a gap there. So we're, we're trying to figure out every avenue to preserve maybe not all the jobs, but try to preserve some of the jobs. Um, because at some point the market does come back. It'll probably come back in the 2025 or 2026 timeframe. So when Chris mentioned that we were going to talk to you guys, I guess, and as I learned a little bit about this, I mean, the, the takeaways that I had from this were one, you, you know, kudos to BAE for leaning into this and wanting to talk about it um, to, you know, make sure that people understood what this was and what it wasn't. Two, um, I, I view it as a, you, you know, it's less capacity for the overall um, ship repair industry, which, you know, depending on the windows that you look at is troubling to me, especially on the West Coast. I mean, yes, the Navy's getting rid of ships, but if you buy this whole competition window and, um, you, you know, that this is a bit troubling. Uh, and then the third is, is, um, you, you know, like you said, I mean, th this is a cycle. It goes up, it goes down. It, am I missing something? What What would you, I mean, not everybody, as Chris said, uh, not all of our listeners are ship repair or shipbuilding experts. I mean, is this just kind of the nature of the business that you guys are in? Or is there, are there bigger takeaways that people should, uh, should walk away with when they, uh, you know, hear this announcement? Yeah, I mean, part of it's the nature of the business, but then also part of it, some factors can make it worse. Uh, a combination of, you know, in San Diego's case, uh, a ship left the home port with uh, Zumwalt going to Mississippi uh, for the work there uh, that's being done uh, to put the uh, uh, to take the gun off and put the uh, hypersonic missiles in there. Um, that also, you know, you had a couple other docking avails cancel uh, as a combination of scheduling and budgetary reasons, and so the thing starts to snowball, and you know, it goes from bad to worse where combination of a ship leave and a home port, budget, um, and a couple other items come together that you make a low point even worse. And so that's that's the piece for us. Uh, another factor in San Diego, you know, the Navy's utilizing its, its graving dock uh, for work on DDGs. We, we have two private sector docks, and so docking capacity is greater there. So there's a couple of avails being done uh, by a company without a dock, uh, utilizing the Navy's dock. So you start to get into the factors of um, 
cost as well. So for me to maintain my infrastructure, I, we spend a lot of money to maintain two docks, to maintain four piers, uh, and to maintain that site. And if you put less work across a fixed cost, your rate goes up, which makes you less competitive. So that puts you into a, a downward spiral as far as competitiveness. And so I, I think that combination in a competitive environment, uh, paying for underutilized assets, you know, those factors come together to make a tough situation worse. So as we look forward to the future, it's how do we bunker down, try to preserve as many jobs as possible. And then uh, we believe the workload would come back in later 2025 20, into 26. Uh, is when some of the workload charts show a lot more of the ships coming in and the dockings coming in. So let, let's shift from California to Florida. So North Florida, Jacksonville. Um, the Navy has a as a base. It's second. It's second East Coast base is at Mayport, Florida, um, sort of at the entrance of the port of Jacksonville. Um, they they have a handful of cruisers and destroyers and mostly Freedom Class littoral combat ships there. Uh, the littoral combat ships are being targeted as on, on the decommissioning list. But your yard in Jacksonville, you're, you're making major improvements there. You're building a new ship lift. Um, you're making a major investment here. Uh, there was a story uh, that I saw a few months ago about, um, I was absolutely shocked to find out from this story that um, BAE making an investment to repair ships based at Mayport was lobbying to keep sh ships in service longer. And I'm stunned. Uh, but, that's that, but that's a business decision for you. So far, the Navy's moving ahead with those, that, those decommissioning plans, yet you seem to be moving ahead with modernization and upgrade plans for Jacksonville. You talk about the situation in Florida for, for a bit here. Yeah, yeah, so a couple of major factors came together for that investment we made. It's a $200 million investment in a ship lift system. Basically, number one, our current dock needed replacement, so we had to replace it with something. Uh, that dock was built in the middle of World War II. Uh, we've repaired it as much as possible, um, and so that has an end of life. So we needed to replace the dock, so that's number one. Two is a combination of basically geography and geology. Um, we were able to explore and, and decide on a ship lift. A uh, ship lift is much more efficient than a floating dry dock. Um, you know, you transfer the ship from the ship lift onto your land level facility. So effectively, we have three times the capacity for docking. It's not one and done as you do with a floating dry dock. You can pull the ship out of the water in a couple of hours, put it on your land level facility and work on it. So different configurations versus number of ships. But as an example, we could put three uh, destroyers on that land level facility, whereas now we could only dock uh, one. The other major factors that came together in Jacksonville, um, different market down there where we're able to also do commercial work or non-Navy work. So for instance, there's uh, car ferries, there's there's other domestic ships under the Jones Act and other commercial vessels, sometimes a yacht or two. So there's other work than the U.S. Navy that we can utilize on the ship lift. And then the last factor, uh, not to be understated, is the state of Florida itself was extremely helpful with 
um, doing things that are, are helpful to business around uh, how do you do permits, uh, financing, you name it. We're, we're still paying for it, but they were very, very helpful with uh, being business friendly. So all those factors came together where uh, we had to make an investment in something. Uh, we had the help there. You had a more diversified market. And all those factors came together that made sense for us to do that investment. And uh, we're, we're happy to do that and looking forward to it. Going back up to Norfolk, um, Norfolk's a pretty sizable facility. Um, one of the things that every time I go to Norfolk, every time I go to any, any of these yards, I always look around to look at capacity, how many ships are in. Um, you know, sometimes, sometimes you go down and there's hardly any, there's, there's uh, none, none at this yard and three at this yard and one over here. Sometimes you go down there and everybody's rocking. There's seven or eight over here, full house, three ships here, full house, four ships there, um, and overflow and, uh, you know, ships being worked on even down at the Naval station. Um, at Norfolk, you had two of the four cruisers that have been worked on in the modernization program, cruiser modernization program, as well as the amphibious ship Tortuga. Um, by the way, just, just for a little background, the Navy had taken seven cruisers and taken them, essentially taken them out of service, planning to bring them back at some point um, with a major upgrade. In the event, the uh, three of the ships fell out of that program and are now gone, decommissioned, stricken. Um, the other four were put in this program for many years, and along with the Tortuga, and um, we're supposed to come back. On the West Coast, Vigor has won uh, the Chosen up in Seattle. Um, GD NASCO has another, the Calpins, which is actually at the Naval Station. But you have both of the Atlantic ships, Gettysburg and Vicksburg. And I believe that Gettysburg was just re-delivered to the Navy. This would be the, make the first ship out of this program to actually come back to life. I remember seeing this sh ship not very long ago. She was pretty much a hulk, looked terrible, was gutted, no engines. Um, gear was uh, all pretty much stripped off, uh, looked terrible. I saw her a month or two ago. She looks great, um, whole, whole different ship. You know, you, you, you appear to have brought it back from the dead. Um, so Gettysburg, I know it's been a major problem with all these cruisers. Navy's talked extensively about the material conditions of ships. Vicksburg remains a uh, uh, the proverbial uh, axiom about a boat. It's a hole in the water into which you just keep pouring money. Um, been in almost three quarters of a billion dollars have been spent on the ship. It's been out of service for years. The Tortuga, not as bad, but you're still working on Tortuga. Can you talk about those three ships and the challenges that you've experienced in those? Yeah, so there's there's a couple things to that. One, yeah, for us uh, in the Navy, good success to get Gettysburg done. Went to final sea trials for us in mid-February of this year. Uh, and you're right, I was aboard that ship a number of times, and the transformation was uh, pretty phenomenal. And, and to get to that point of sea trials, uh, we were pretty proud about that. Um in the case of uh, Vicksburg, yeah, it had a bunch of different modernization and repair work. It hadn't been docked for 17 years uh, until we docked it a couple years ago. And so what happens on ships that are laid up for a long period of time, a lot of discovery takes place. You could imagine a ship that's in active service when it comes in here, 
we still find a fair number of surprises. But a ship, if it's been laid up for a long period of time, a lot of the systems uh, deteriorate. It, this is no different than your car being in a barn for a long time. But this is just exponentially more complicated. And so the same thing happened um, with both Vicksburg and Tortuga. So there's a lot of discovery, a lot of changes, uh, and we're working through that. You know, in the case of Tortuga, I'm happy to say there's a lot of system testing going on now. So I think the light at the end of the tunnel is there. For, for Tortuga. And then in the case of Vicksburg, um, you know, the Navy's going through the process right now to decide what to do with that ship, whether it decommission it or not. Um, you know, some of the suppliers, the government suppliers have been shut off on that ship. We're still working some items on that ship. So we'll have to see how that plays out in the summer, some final decisions between uh, the Navy and, and Congress, what will happen on Vicksburg, and we'll wait and see. I think the lesson learned in, in this, not only for us, but the Navy and, and as you mentioned, Vigor uh, and NASCO, is when a ship's laid up for a long period of time, a ton of changes will happen, a ton of unexpected work. And that's a very tough model to follow on a fixed price contract because there's so many unknowns. Ideally, with a fixed price contract, you have fixed scope. And so really, in hindsight, the contracting model, the the, the amount of work, the amount of changes, uh, we all would agree that we would do it differently knowing what we know now with those type of ships. It sounds like Tortuga, you'd rather deliver that right now. I mean, as, as you know, there's, there's legislation about all these ships. They're named in the, in the Authorization Acts. We're very hopeful on Tortuga. There's, you know, this, this past week, we were doing some different system testings, uh, starting up generators, different things like that. It's, We've done enough ships to know kind of when you're when you can see the light at the end of the tunnel uh, and, you, and you can get home. And we're at that stage on Tortuga. So the Navy's working really well with us. Um, you know, same thing. You're restarting systems that haven't been started for a long time. You discover some things. Um, but I'm, I'm really hopeful that that ship can get done similar to Gettysburg and go out to sea trials in a few months. All right. Well, thanks, Paul. Uh, we've been talking with uh, Paul Smith, Senior Vice President, General Manager of BAE Systems Ship Repair. Uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating uh, operation that you have. You're, you're on both coasts. You deal with a lot of ships and you deal with a lot of uncertainty. So thanks for being our guest today, Paul. Thanks. Happy to be here and uh, look forward to meeting again in the future. Now hear this. Now hear this. All right. You know what that means. It's time for Squawk Box. And this week, Mr. Cavus talks about more success for the LCS program. Thanks, Chris. Well, folks, as I record this, the Independence-class littoral combat ship USS Charleston is headed home to San Diego after more than two years deployed to the Western Pacific. The ship cruised the South China Sea, operated in the Philippines and Indonesia, ranged into the mid-Indian Ocean. While there were surely problems from time to time, as with all long cruisers, there have been no public indications of any serious issues other than a mishap with an unmanned aircraft during the very early stages of the deployment. Crews swapped out several times as they performed regular maintenance without requiring a major dockyard period. The cruise is a model for what routine littoral combat ships, ship deployments should look like. The successful conclusion of this deployment should be a moment of congratulations for the ship's crews and all the many people and organizations that support the LCS program. Well, at least one might think. As I speak, 
The Freedom Class LCS Indianapolis is operating with the U.S. Sixth Fleet in the Mediterranean area, the second such deployment for the more maligned Freedom LCS variant, following on last year's successful cruise by the Sioux City to the Mediterranean Sea and the Persian Gulf. You might not know about this latest cruise, since the Navy did not make any public announcement in April when the Indianapolis left the U.S. East Coast after many months of preparation. And the Navy still has not made any public acknowledgement of this latest cruise of an LCS to the European Theater of Operations. The Navy routinely makes announcements about ships on deployment, not so much specifically what they're doing, but certainly about dozens of port calls to foreign nations and multilateral exercises that take place. But when it comes to the littoral combat ships these days, it's nearly crickets. Oh, sure, once in a while. But as a general rule, the service has gone dark about trumpeting any kind of positive development related to the LCS. It's sort of understandable. They're actively decommissioning ships of both classes long before they've reached the projected 20 plus years service life. And Navy leaders appear to be avoiding having to explain to a skeptical Congress why they're throwing away nearly new ships that are bought and paid for, while the production lines for both classes are still hot and ships are proving their worth. Both independence and freedom class construction is coming to an end for sure, but there are a few more still coming to be placed in service with the Navy. There is no shortage of critics about the littoral combat ship program, and there is no shortage of items stretching back 20 years to complain about. That things did not turn out as originally envisioned is widely known and documented, but there are thousands of men and women in uniform and civilian clothes who are working and succeeding to make the ships relevant and useful in today's naval and maritime environment. I know this. I've heard it from rank and file and behind the scenes from senior leadership, but you are not hearing it. That the Navy chooses to publicly ignore these accomplishments is a slap in the face to all the people working to make the LCS program work. Get off it, Big Navy. Start giving the LCS crews and their supporting establishment their due. They deserve it. They're making lemonade out of your lemons. Thanks, Chris. A slap indeed. Well, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Maradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. The Cavishivs podcast is sponsored by GE Marine, a GE aerospace company offering unparalleled power and propulsion for ships from the biggest combatants to the smallest, fastest patrol boats. GE's propulsion solutions are ready for the next generation of sea power. Learn more at geaerospace.com slash marine. And by HII. HII is one of the largest artificial intelligence and machine learning federal contractors to the U.S. government. HII delivering hard stuff done right. Be sure to follow us at Cavus Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavus. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.